Natural Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart. On today's podcast, I'll be interviewing Joseph Fasano. Joseph Fasano is an American poet and novelist from Goshen, New York. He went to Harvard and Columbia where he studied philosophy and then got an MFA. He has won Rattle Poetry Prizes, uh, Missouri Review Editors Prizes, and let's just face it, everything he's done has just been met with critical acclaim. One of my favorite that I actually listed on Malden House is one of the best of last year was his first novel, The Dark Heart of Every Wild Thing. You really need to check it out. On this episode, though, we do cover a lot of his literature and everything he's written, but we get a little bit more behind the scenes and we talk about music, the inspiration behind the writing, a little bit of fascism, and we even get into a little bit of the philosophy of logic, which is like new and fun that I think people actually enjoy hearing a bit more about. So I don't want to give away the entire episode, so let's get to it. How's it going? It's going well. I just I just finished my semester of teaching, so it's, you know, there's always mixed feelings about that. Hard to, hard to say goodbye to students, but also looking forward to uh, some time to, to get writing, you know. I like that you're the third teacher I've interviewed. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So did you have to do Zoom teaching at all, or...? Yeah, it's been three semesters of, of Zoom teaching. I was telling my students the other day, I'm so, I'm just so impressed by their ability to kind of plow through that because, you know, it's tough for everybody, but I mean, think about being in college, 18, 19, 20, 21, and, and having, to, <laughs> having to have that experience online. It's pretty brutal. So they did a great job, though. Yeah, that's cool. I know um, my niece is in college, and they were given only like 48 hours to leave campus when corona hit really hard. Yeah, I heard that from, from um, I don't quite know how it went down at, at Manhattanville, which is one of the places where I teach because I was kind of already out of town. But um, no, I've heard that from so many people that it was just sort of this quick turnaround, long weekend that turned into a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel so bad because like they missed the college experience a little bit. Oh, yeah. You know, it's... it's um, college age students high school age students it's just you know those those necessary years when you're supposed to be out getting in trouble you know mm-hmm. <laughs> well it's good that they're back now yeah they're back getting in trouble <laughs> there you go we need them to get into trouble yeah, now it's totally true so they don't do really stupid shit as adults <laughs> yeah although sometimes that doesn't preclude the possibility i know it from per- first-hand experience <laughs> Oh, same here, but when we do fucked up things as adults, it's almost always worse. <laughs> this is very true. It's like once you hit 18, it's no longer innocent, oh, I got into trouble. Right. It's okay. I got to get my act together. <laughs> yeah. I think I finally started to get out of trouble when I was like 22. <laughs> well, you beat me to it then. It took me longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, like, when I was 20, I started drinking a lot, but yeah. that's as bad as it got. Oh, good. It's good that you avoided that, um, those particular particular hells. Yeah, my high school experience was very funny because I was, um, you know, I come from this small town, and um, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, I had to be super focused to try to get to the places that I wanted to get to. So... Um, I don't think I 
cracked a beer in my whole high school experience. I made up for lost time later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never even went to a party in high school. I was one of those geeky kids. Nice. Like, I how don't even know if they were happening or not. That's how, like, <laughs> far down I was in the totem pole. How did your how did your geekdom manifest itself? Were you, like, obsessively into certain things? Um, I was a big reader, and I was mm. in the honor roll courses. So, like, I don't know. You never interact with the cool people who are throwing parties. You interact right. with the people who are, like, watching Monty Python on YouTube. See, I'm into that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was my high school years. Or we would go to football games, but we wouldn't go anywhere near the game. We just wanted to hang out, usually sit by the band kids. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Carroll Stream, Illinois. Okay. Yeah, where'd you grow up? In a town called Goshen, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley. It's, um, it's only about two hours, two and a half hours northwest of where I'm sitting now, which is in Manhattan, but it's a very... A very different world. Small town, you know, grew up in um, the outskirts of that town. And it was, um, you know, a life of, of uh, we had horses and, and, and fields and, you know, birds in the air, that kind of that kind of childhood. I really loved it. So that stuff is very much in me. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the images that, that come up in my writing. I think where we grow up is, um, I think the places where we grow up sort of waken different archetypes in each one of us. You know, it's like we all have oceans inside of us, but those of us who grow up by oceans, we just, we kind of know what those smell like and those wake up in us in a way. So, and then once we have that, it forms us in this way that's probably forever. I was going to say, I didn't know you grew up in a small town, but when I was looking on your Twitter, I saw you actually play and enjoy a lot of folk music. Mm -hmm. Did that correlate at all? Yeah, when I was, you know, it's funny because I'm, definitely a child of the 90s so you know my musical tastes when I was you know growing up was just driving around a small town listening to sort of classic rock classic rock radio and then and then the grunge hit and so like a lot of kids in the 90s I had my electric guitar and you know that was a lot of fun played in little bands here and there and then there was a moment when I found Bob Dylan's music and started to really connect to that sound, that sort of, um, you know, rootsy sound and traded out the electric guitar for an acoustic guitar and, and really got into that, um, that music and, you know, then discovered people like Towns Van Zandt and, and, and went back into the, into the blues and that sort of American music. And it's really sort of been my love or, or, or one of the things that's informed my work really ever since then. But yeah, it, it helped growing up in a place where, you know, there, y- you kind of didn't feel any pressure to be anything but what you were interested in. I dig it. Yeah. Did that influence your writing at all? It's funny because there was, there was definitely a time early, earlier in my life when I wasn't really sure what forms my creativity would take. And so writing songs was something I would tinker around with when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. But as I began to write poems, I began to feel, you know, the musicality that's inherent in the language. And, you know, writing a song is just, it's such a different thing from writing a poem. And so I drifted away from songwriting and, um, you know, really, really tried to find my voice and my poetry. And it's only been in recent years that I've 
reconnected to to the art of songwriting, tinkered around with that a little bit. And I find it's it's interesting to exercise these different forms of creativity. So I write fiction, I write poems, I write songs, and they're all very, very different forms, but they can cross-fertilize with each other in this really interesting way that at least, at least that I find is, is interesting and, and productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely get that vibe. There's definitely like a naturalism feel to your writing. Thanks for saying that. I mean, I really care about, I actually, I mean, if you sort of got me in a corner and, and, and made me talk about it, I would talk about this, this feeling that I have that, that the forms in which we express ourselves are deeply connected to, to the natural world. There's something, there's some connection that can hardly be articulated between the structure of a galaxy and the structure of, of a good line of poetry, you know, without sounding grandiose. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anything that, certainly not anything I've ever achieved in my work, but I do think that these structures are written into us in a deep level. So when I'm writing, I, I do, I try to connect to what I feel are, um, what Whitman calls um, nature without check with original energy. I love that phrase. I was just reading Whitman. It's the oh, right yeah? weather here to do <laughs> it. <laughs> is it the right weather over by you? Yeah, it is, right? Everything's sort of budding and blossoming in this Whitmanic way. As we stumble out of this pandemic, hopefully it does feel like the right weather and time to to read Whitman. And he's great because there's always something new in him mm-hmm. to be found. I was going to say, you could read the same poems over and over and then get new meaning. Definitely. Like each if, time. If, if they hold up. And, and, you know, it's also true about one's own work. I mean, you can go back and, and hopefully find things in your work and say, oh, that I see now that that's what I was up to or... But Whitman's a great example of that because, you know, his, um, his song of myself begins with the word I. You know, I, I celebrate myself and sing myself. And all those many, many, many lines later, it ends with the word you. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. We think of Whitman as this celebrant of the self. And he is that. But he's really, I believe, only a celebrant of the self insofar as the journey into the self is a journey toward other people. So in that sense, there's always something to discover in Whitman because, you know, the deeper you go into your own reality and the clearer you get with that, I think the closer you can get to others. Uh, yeah, Whitman is great, of course. I mean, that's an understatement. I was going to ask, how did you get into Whitman? Because it wasn't taught at my school. Did you get taught Whitman? You know, it's funny because, and I, I say this with deep love for the school and the place that I come from, and I had some wonderful teachers, but it was a very kind of small-town American curriculum. I think we maybe only saw a few poems and they were some anthology pieces. Um, I remember reading Randall Jarrell's The Death of the Ball Turret Gunner and I love the poems of Randall Jarrell, but that's, um, you know, we really weren't exposed to that many of the possibilities of poetry. Um, So my reading of poetry sort of, I just, started to connect to it when I was younger, sort of on my own. And then, you know, when I got out of high school and I got, when I got to college was really when I started connecting with people who were a revelation for me. They were suddenly people my age who had all of these tremendous interests and we can be, we could be silly 18, 19 year olds together, but we were, we could also talk about poetry and we could talk about philosophy. And and that's when I really, I went all in. Where did you go to college? I went to Harvard. 
Oh, wow. You're a smart person. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but it was, it was a great, it was a great place to, as I say, not only were, were the teachers, of course, tremendous, but just, just my peers. I mean, some of my best friends still are from those years. And um, just to be surrounded by people who are curious, deeply curious about everything, um, it's really, it's great. It's, it's, it's wonderful. What was your uh, specific uh, degree in? I ended up doing philosophy. My story is a little bit funny. I'll give you the abridged version, which is when I was very young, even as I was trying to be creative, I, I don't think that's mutually exclusive with scientific thinking. I was very drawn to mathematics and the hard sciences. And, and I was sure when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I was sure that I was going to to go on and study math and study physics. And so when I first got to Harvard, I, I was studying astrophysics, actually. I wanted to be an astronomer. And it was somewhere along the line that I realized that my interest in astronomy had more to do with my interest in the infinities within us rather than some objective reality that's out there that we need to use a scientific language to contact or to touch. So I, so I started reading Wittgenstein and I started taking literature courses and took some time off to, to do some thinking about what I wanted to do. And when I went back, philosophy just seemed really right. And the department was, was very welcoming. And it was, it was really, I definitely have only fond memories of my time, my undergraduate years. Oh, yeah. I love philosophy. I was a double major, uh, history and philosophy. Oh, wow. Very cool. Did you do, was there a particular, like, did you write a thesis? Did you do something... I wrote a thesis um, about uh, logic philosophy. Nice. Like Gödel. Yeah, wow, really, the incompleteness theorem. Yeah, and then uh, history I did, uh, what is it, gender and uh, labor reform of the early 20th century. That sounds pretty fantastic. Yeah, Gödel is, is, is this, um, I keep trying to write a poem, either in the voice of Kurt Gödel or about him. Um, because it's such, I mean, he was such a fascinating, do you know a little bit about his biography? He's pretty wild. Oh yeah. I read a lot about him cause I had to do a little bit of a biography within the thesis. Mm. Yeah. It ended his life in this sort of paranoid place. And it's, it's, it's so, it's hard not to connect the thematic structures in his work, which is to say that they're there is something deeply incomplete about even our seemingly most complete systems of logic to his own physical life, his starvation toward the end of his life, his paranoia, his seeming um, crisis in identity. And it's just such, it's a, it's maybe that's why I can't write a poem about it because it's sort of already there. I also think it's because he's pretty obscure. I don't think a lot of people know him. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, here we are talking about him, which is great, but maybe maybe outside of... There have been some popular books in recent years because, you know, about his incompleteness theorem because it's that kind of thing, like the Riemann hypothesis or something, that you can kind of wrap your mind around what it means or what its implications are without, of course, understanding the, the math. I have to say, you really are the first person I met who really knows oh, this yeah. stuff. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. <laughs> yeah, always, I'm always happy to talk about talk about Gödel. I mean, it's um, yeah. And then he spent some years with Einstein at the Princeton um, 
Institute for Advanced Study, and I could only imagine what the conversations between those two people were because Einstein at that point was was kind of wrestling with the implications of quantum mechanics and his famous uh, famous pushback against the idea that he said God does not play dice with the universe. And, and there is Gödel thinking about you know the incompleteness of our knowledge, that hard epistemological horizon of our knowing things. But exactly. so this is what I mean. It's like all to me, it's all connected. There's no. I think that there's a definitely something valid in thinking about, um, you know, kind of talking to young people about their particular kinds of intelligence. I think that's of course true, right? You can't really measure intelligence in one way. So I think there's a validity in like culturally redefining intelligence or interest and saying, okay, you're this kind of learner, you're that kind of learner. But I do, I do. I'm a little bit, a little bit wary of that because I think that. Um, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it could encourage young people to think that if they're interested in the arts, they can't be interested in the sciences or they can't be good at math or, you know, all this sort, sort of stuff. I think to me, the, the writers and the artists I love and admire most are these sort of polymaths and they, they bring stuff together and make these really unexpected synthetic connections. So I try to encourage that in my students, you know, not to necessarily there's a great virtue of specialization but how much is specialization sometimes just an internalization of our culture of commodification you know like you've got to be this or that you're a poet you're this you know whatever it might be um do you know what i mean oh no yeah i definitely agree some of my favorite writers they didn't study literature at all one of them actually did physics another one was a linguistics major um basically a lot more like us. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we bring something very interesting to the field of poetry and writing, a perspective that people who got MFAs and everything just can't have. Well, see, yeah, but I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sort of on the inside and I get one foot on the inside. <laughs> you have a very interesting trajectory there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one way to say it. Um, how do you pivot? I don't know. I mean, to me, I've always just tried to follow what I feel is right at that time. And when I was in, so when I was in my undergraduate years and I was writing poems and I studied with Jory Graham at Harvard and um, really fell in love with that, fell in love with the process of making poems and knew that's what I wanted to do. Got out of college and sort of drifted around for a year writing poems, not really sure what to do. And, um, you know, moved to the lower, lower East Side of Manhattan with a friend of mine. And, and I thought, you know, it's, it's maybe I grew up in the wrong age. Like, it wasn't, it's not the 60s. I'm not going to be able to just go to a coffee shop in, in, the lower, in Lower East Side or in the West Village of New York and, and find those conversations very easily. And there wasn't as much stuff online back then. This is like 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I remember kind of making the very practical choice that there were people I wanted to study with. And I did my MFA. So then I... I put together a portfolio of poems and applied to a few programs and chose to go to Columbia. And I, I, I really loved it. I mean, there were people there. I studied with Lucy Brock Broido, rest her soul, just an amazing human being through and through. She always believed in me and my work and studied with Mark Strand and, and Richard Howard and Timothy Donnelly. And I, I remember feeling at that time that there are always, you know, things that are problematic about certain institutionalized structures but I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to 
be compelled to do a lot of growth in my work in these two years that it might take me five, six, seven years elsewhere to do because you're really confronting other voices and other attitudes toward your work. There's a lot that can get done in a creative writing workshop. There's a lot that can be detrimental. But um, no, I did. I really did uh, get a lot out of that experience and um, found it really, really great on the whole. Mm -hmm. What year did you go to New York? That was, let me think, I finished... I was in grad school from 2006 to 2008. So that would place you kind of more Gen X, right? Yeah, I guess it's funny. I think I'm one of those I liminal ones. You're like the micro generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am one of those. Yeah, I'm going to be 39 in a few days, or maybe I'll be 39 when this airs. But um, You'll probably yeah. be like called an Xennial. Yeah, I, I've always felt like I'm not really sure. It's funny because I think that's true about me in so many ways. Like I'm one foot in the country, one foot in the city, one <laughs> foot in one generation, one foot in another. Uh, it makes for interesting tensions and art can always use those. Oh, no, definitely. Um, how do you think that's affected your music tastes? You know, being yes. part of like two generations at the same time. Yeah, it's. I think one of the things that compelled me to do was to sort of reach out beyond what was in the immediate vicinity that I was that I was hearing because yeah exactly I didn't really you know I was a, I was a kid in the 80s so 80s music to me always had this um it, it didn't quite feel like it felt like something that was going on in the background but it's not something that I had you know grown grown into not a fan um, of the synth pop yeah I'm not a fan of the synth pop yeah I mean there's a lot of great it's funny because now in my life as I begin to look back you know when you're a kid, I don't know how old you are, I'm not going to ask, but when, <laughs> when I was growing up and... I'm 30. Okay, you're 30, okay. So it's funny because there, there is the background music of your life and you know, you're driving in the car with your parents in some small town and there's the, those radio stations that are you know, hits from the, from the 60s, from the 70s, 80s, and today, you know, they used to say, or something like that. And I remember just so much in me just thinking, oh, my God, this sounds, this is atrocious. I feel like I'm in a <laughs> dentist's office just waiting for something horrible to happen. But it's only now that I can go back and you find some of these amazing songwriters and the incredible, um, like Gordon Lightfoot is an incredible songwriter. Mm. His ability to put together these, these songs and this lyrical content. And, yeah, you might not have been aware of that at some point when it's just there in the background. I know it's something that it really confuses my parents because my brother and I were just that way too. And now we're adults and we're really into like, say, Sam Cooke or uh, mm -hmm. Paul Simon and everything. Mm -hmm. And they're like, where the hell did you pick that up? That is not your generation. It's like, yeah. we were always aware of it. We still like it. Well, it's funny because I see, you know, my students or young, really young people kind of walking, walking around wearing a Nirvana shirt. Um, and that's actually really beautiful. It's like they weren't even born... Um, and t I guess that would be like, you know, me listening to Dylan or something, even though it's different because Dylan's still around. But yeah, he's I mean, a pretty good reclusive guy. Dylan, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I saw him. I've seen him many, many times. He came to Harvard in two thousand, and I want to say it was, I don't know, maybe two thousand three or something. And I remember being so excited. I was a huge Dylan fan, and I had, I had. Um, gone to see him in Lowell, Massachusetts when I was 19 years old and some pretty 
extreme, you know, ways I had to take to get up there and, and see him. But then he came to the college and he played in the gym. And I remember standing, you know, just two feet away from him. This amazing experience. It just gives a tremendous show. I think part of his genius is he changes with his voice. He lets his voice lead him. So it's he never feels like a diminishment of a previous version of himself. He finds the truth in his new voice. I saw him just a couple of years ago um, here in Manhattan, and he did this really stripped-down version of a few songs, just him and piano, and it was just transcendent with that voice that is totally different, of course, than what it was in the past. So he is a real artist because he he is the changes, you know. I would say I would compare that to Patti Smith a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, she definitely just allows herself to transcend time. Mm -hmm. And also, obviously, medium. She's, like, a poet and a writer. Yeah, totally. Right, and to change, and to to not only be open to the change, but to to really to really go into those those changes i mean it's really incredible to think about artists doing that in the first place and then secondly doing that in an american landscape that is very ready to pigeonhole you into one thing because it knows then how to sell you right so you know i mean dylan's ability to say okay you know reach a tremendous amount of success with a certain kind of song or a certain kind of voice or a certain kind of sound and say i'm going to go do this other thing now um I don't know if it takes courage because I don't think he has a choice. I think he's that much of an artist operating from the inside out. There's a great story that Robbie Robertson, who played guitar with him for a while. By the way, Robbie Robertson had a, had a good book called Testimony. I don't know if you saw it, but it's um, it's a really good, I recommend it. It's a good book about his years with Dylan. Anyway, he tells this story. shout out for everybody to check that out. Yeah. He tells this story about um, playing with Dylan when Dylan had gone electric and everybody was booing really and he said you know dylan would would come back and and say that was a great show <laughs> and they would all kind of laugh and say how do you gather that conclusion from that audience response and he said you know the months went on the months went on and somewhere along the line robbie robertson looked up and said you know they're wrong the audiences are wrong and eventually the audiences came around and he says this beautiful phrase he says you know and we never changed a note and i think that's a deep thing to reflect on because I think we're at a kind of a dangerous spot right now where instead of artists shaping audiences and showing them into parts of themselves, we can get to a place, especially with social media, where the audiences pre-exist and then create or shape the artists, you know, to fit. Uh, you know, because we, they know, you know, the, the pr people who produce this kind of, kind of music can say, okay, well, we know what's going to work. We know what there's a thirst for right now. But I kind of think artists are around to sort of teach people what they're thirsting for. I would say we definitely have become the product, you know, because we brand ourselves so much. And we mm -hmm. there's always a press that fits our style, and then they'll help, like, repackage us even more. Right. It's almost like we're the pimp and the whore in that way. <laughs> yeah, and then it just becomes this very potentially ossifying model where... You think you're doing things in good faith, but you might not be really being true to the dynamic process in you. Um, it's complicated, and I don't pretend to be self-righteous about it because I, I don't know. But I just know that if we're mindful about this sort of stuff, then that'll that can't you know you can't go wrong. I was about to ask: Do you ever find yourself when you're writing doing that subconsciously? Probably, 
probably it is subconscious on levels that I have to shake myself awake to. But I will say that one of the great things about being a poet is, let's put it this way, you're free of the marketplace. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. It's no one's going to... I think I think if you're the kind of person who writes things for immediate consumption on social media, then that might be something you have to be mindful about. That's not something I do. I share my work on social media, um, but um, it's usually after a, a kind of delay or they've come out in, in my books or something. But, yeah, no, I, 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 of course, lament at times the fact that there isn't a tremendous audience for poetry only because I think it can enrich so many people's lives, but... You know, it, it's not the end of the world because it will find the people that really want to be found by it. I would say I've noticed Gen Z seems to have much uh, interest in poetry than our generation did. Like they're actually being taught it in school. I do. I think that's right. I think, you know, I have, yeah, so many students who are just really, really interested in the art of poetry. And I think that's, of course, only a great thing. I think that social media can create an atmosphere in which there's a lot of, um, you know, distribution of poetry or, or, or creative language of some kind so that it, it, there's a democratization of it. And that's really, really great. And then students, um, you know, seek out the study of it and say, Hey, how do I do this? Or what was this person up to 20 years ago, 200 years ago, 2000 years ago? What is language up to? Um, and so, yeah, there's a tremendous interest in it. And I think that's great. I was going to say, I'm an editor of Malden House, and I actually get a lot of high schoolers submitting to us now. So obviously they are gaining an interest, which I like. And they've all of them have different forms. They're not trying to be, say, like, your romantic poet or anything. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are going a little bit into that rupee car direction. Sure. But I see a lot of them just kind of developing their own style. That's great to hear. The other thing I will just mention, though, that I often say to my students is protect your solitude early on. You know, there, there, there's going to be time to share. And I think that it's really important, especially early on in your creative life, yeah, to get feedback and to throw things out there in the world if you want to throw them out there in the world. But I think we need time in the cocoon, you know. And it's not just so that you perfect yourself before you go out there in the world. But I think we need the time to kind of witness ourselves into being rather than constantly thinking about, I've just created this five minutes ago. I need some feedback on it. How's it going to be seen? Tell me who I am. Tell me what's good. We all have to be wary of that. And so I definitely, you know, remind my students who are younger, you know, yeah, you know, whatever makes you feel good makes you feel free. But have your solitary apprenticeship with your own life as well. Or at least carve out that space for yourself that you can carry it with you throughout your life of sharing, throughout your life of publication, throughout your life of performance. Got to have that space in you, that, that little, you know, grove of oak trees in the woods that you can always go to. I I definitely agree. I mean, if they're going to start really early on with the constant craving of reassurance they're never going to be able to like form their own self uh confidence and everything when it comes to writing totally what's interesting is is i i just had my my first year students were writing some final papers in which i just kind of let them write about whatever they wanted to write about from a certain critical angle and almost all of them wrote about new media and social media and they had this amazing to a person they had this amazing 
um, critical eye toward it and thinking about exactly these things so that it, I never have to come off as, you know, preachy or anything. I mean, uh, because they know more about it than I do. They, they grew up in it and with it. Um, you know, when I grew up, it was like I heard a Bob Dylan song on the radio and I was joking with my students about this. It was, I remember this, it was, I was driving in a car in the mid nineties and it was Dylan's uh, song, Positively Fourth Street. And I knew it was Dylan. I could hear his voice, but I was like, how do I know what the title of this song is? <laughs> I had to sort of stop the car and scribble down the lyrics. And then, um, so it's a different world, but it's exciting. I'm not apocalyptic about it. I don't think any of this stuff is bad. It's a tool, you know, and, and atomic energy is a tool. And I think that what happens is when, as a culture, as a civilization, if we dare use the word, when we create a technology, let's say the atom bomb, right? The atom bomb comes into existence here in the mid-1940s. We literally have to raise ourselves to a higher level of consciousness as a species so as not to destroy ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have to think about things on a different level, on a higher plane of consciousness. And I think social media is the same thing. So it gives us an opportunity to either get lost in it like a drug addiction or to, and I see my students doing this and I love it, raise themselves, raise ourselves to this higher level of consciousness and say, what is this technology? How are we using it? How is it using us? So in that way, I think if we can rise to the occasion, it could be a really great thing. Do you feel that way when you use social media? I feel like I use it like... Are you like using a, it as a tool more or... Yeah, it feels like a tool. That's a, that's a good word for it. I think that's maybe the generational difference. I don't want to sound like an old guy. I'm not. <laughs> but there's... Um, don't worry, you don't look old. Okay, thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think tool is the right word. Um, so that whether it's the piece of technology itself, like the phone, or the, or the extension of it, the, the social media, I think... Yeah, I view it as as a tool. It's an instrument by which to reach people rather than an extension of myself or rather than an avatar for myself. Mm-hmm. I have a certain sense of self that precedes it and then is informed by it. Um, I, I don't say that as a value judgment that that's any better or worse than the other way of looking at it, but I do, and in that sense, that's why I like paying attention to my students and thinking about the ways in which they're thinking about it. I feel like social media could really affect the way that we think, and I'm sure that that's how your students were writing about it. Do you ever find yourself doom scrolling? Huh. You know, I'm I'm pretty good at. It's a, I actually had, haven't heard that phrase before, and I love it. Um, no, I'm actually pretty good at at unplugging. Um, I share some things every now and then, and look at some things coming across from from friends of mine, but frankly, I get overwhelmed pretty easily. You know, there's always a lot spinning in my head and, and, um, it's enough for me to walk down 106th street and hear, you know, different voices of people around me. And then to look at my phone for a couple minutes, it's, it's, I need, I need that quiet space. I need to unplug from that. So I'm pretty good at, at doing that and not, not going down that rabbit hole. I'm always very curious about people like you. What do you use to, like, say, get the news and everything each day? Yeah, I mean, I it depends on what headspace I'm in. I mean, I will go for two or three weeks if I'm working on a book, for example. I mean, I'm working on a new novel. Um, particularly, What's it called? Uh, it's called The Swallows of Lunetto. 
Cool. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's a book about um, it's set in southern Italy at the end of the Second World War, and it really explores so, some of the individual motivations uh, one character had for getting lost in Italian fascism, which I think is obviously for obvious reasons super relevant for today. Um, but as I was working on that book, when I'm r- really deeply working on a project, I mean, I, I, I totally more or less unplug. So I might not even read the times or look at the news for something like 20 days straight. I'll just wake up in the morning and work on my book and take a walk and work on it in the afternoon, do some reading, listen to some music, spend time with somebody I love, and go to sleep. When I'm not doing that, um, if I'm going to get my news, you know, it's, it's yeah, I'll, I'll look at social media. I'll read the Times. I'll read the L.A. Times. I'll read the major media outlets. It's hard, though, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't profess to have any wisdom about the way to receive the world right now. I try to do it as on an individual basis, what feels right. But there are times, don't you feel, when you kind of have to really think about, hey, why do I feel this way today? Who told me how to feel this way today, you know? <laughs> Oh, definitely. So your new book, how after the World War, like how far? It's set right at the end of it. So um, it begins just a few weeks after the war has ended. And there's a main character who appears in his hometown, his little hometown in Calabria. It's a fictional town, but it's right by a very real place called Albanella, which is where... um, one root of my own family is from. And he, um, he appears in that hometown wearing a mask. And I think that that image was very resonant, of course, for me and for everybody in this time that we're living in. Only he's wearing it because he is sort of professing to have a certain gruesome war injury, and that's, what, that's why he's not showing his face. Although in reality, he's not showing his face because he's done something particularly ignominious in the war. So it becomes a, a story about personal shame, intergenerational trauma, the ways in which we get lost in our own ghost stories, the ways in which we get lost in political narratives that aim to hijack the pain of our own lives. And I think that's something that very much is happening in our Mm -hmm. own country, right? I mean, I think that it's really naive and really reckless to write off people whose political views you don't believe in. And I think it's the artist's role to it's one of the roles of an artist to kind of look at that and say what makes this person tick why might this person be believing these things as hard as it might be to look at so sometimes we have to come at things in a slanted way I think the book was a way and has been a way for me to connect to my own Italian roots but also a way to look at these yeah these political situations in which as I say um, certain certain political forces hijack our pain. I was going to ask, have you ever read, uh, it's a three-act play called Rhinoceros by Eugene? Oh, yeah, by, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, um, Inesco, Ionesco, what's his name? I would say um, Ionesco. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I did. I read it many, many years ago. Um, I read it, I think I read it in high school, actually, despite what I said about our curriculum. I guess that's a pretty, pretty interesting thing to read. Yeah, why do you bring that up? Oh, I was going to say, there feels like there's similar themes to mm. your novel to that. I'd have to go back and look at it. I remember the, 
I remember the sort of absurdist element of it. Um, Obviously, it takes place in France as opposed to Italy, but I mean, it's just kind of watching everybody, like one by one, turn into the rhinoceros and just blend in with the fascism. Mm. So I guess your book would be like the after effect, but this is like the before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's terrifying even to think about it that way, right? Because the after, it lingers for so long. And and I think partly my book is interested in the ways in which people get picked up by certain political movements and chewed up and spat out. And there's a, there's a person there, you know? There's a person who had to fight in a war or or whatever it, whatever it was that they did, and they're carrying that trauma with them for a long, long time. I actually get really into politics, and obviously your book feels a little political to me, and I wanted to know your opinion, because right now as a country, we're very divided, mm -hmm. but we don't have the things that happened in the war World War, like where there are like actual like trials or ways to handle fascism and other countries stepping in. How do you think that that would happen in our country now? Meaning how do I think? Well, I think one of the things that's... Do we suddenly forgive everybody? Do you think that they'll slowly try and rejoin back with the rest of American society? I think it's, it's, it really is going to sound almost kind of, you know, pat and cliche. But what I know is that all... What I feel that I can do when I wake up in the morning as a teacher is facilitate conversations, individual conversations and to have those individual conversations. And I think we were talking, you and I, just a moment ago about social media spaces, and mm -hmm. those, of course, can be amplifying for dichotomies. And I think cultures, if they are that, get themselves into trouble when there's a psychological split, right? So we project parts of our own shadow onto the other, and that creates a tremendous dislike for the other, and that creates bias, and that creates hate. And I think the only way towards psychological health is individual integration. So yes, there are things that can be done on a larger scale and on a community organizing scale, and those things are really, really great. Um, but I also think this is where you know, one person can only do so much, and I, I've come to think of my life as, okay, well, what are some of the things that I can do? What are some of the things that I can do well? And to create literature that opens up conversations and allows people to think about integrating their own selves and not projecting parts of their own selves into others and for me to think about the ways in which I do that that's the way I think about it kind of like on a local local level meaning <laughs> in, in individual responsibility um, and again as I say this deeply aware of the fact that there are outreach things and that there are larger scale things that need to be done but um, yeah it's tough because things are not when things are perniciously under the surface and they're not right out in the open and, and people do not um, really seem to be even clear about the ways in which they're perpetrating a hatred or division. It's harder to combat that. Mm -hmm. So your last book, want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my, my latest book was a, a novel called The Dark Heart of Every Wild Thing. And, you know, it's funny, Mallory, because for the first I don't know, decade of my writing life, people would ask me, because I, I would mostly wrote poems, and I still mo mostly write poems. People would say, well, you're going to write a novel. And I would always take this kind of strange offense to that, like, well, okay, I know that that's the thing you recognize as what you'll see on a bookshelf. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, really pushed back 
against narrative linearity. It wasn't the way that I felt that I experienced the world. Um, I tend to think of things in a more fragmentary, synthetic way, which amounts to poems happening. But I found myself in around 2014 or 15, sitting down one day at my writing desk and beginning this story. And I had no idea where it was coming from, no idea where it was going. And I just followed it for a few years. And uh, it's a book about a man who lives in the Pacific Northwest who has lost his wife to a car accident. Uh, and he and his young son travel up to the mountains of British Columbia together every late summer. And, uh, and they hunt together. They explore the wilderness. It becomes their way of kind of bonding and grieving. And I'll just say it then becomes a novel about survival, emotional survival, survival through grief, and then actual physical survival. And I think um, it was something that I needed to write at that time in my life. I've noticed that it's gotten a lot of critical acclaim. Does that change the way you write now? I was very surprised because coming from the world of poetry, you, you write your poems and send them out there in the world and really it's just a matter of of what the where the work is going not really concerned with how it's received fiction has a different audience and um it's definitely more widespread and mainstream yeah yeah, i think maybe people feel that a story um is more accessible and um i was just glad that that people seem to be to want to go on that kind of story maybe it's something to do about you know, with the complexities of the, of the world in which we find ourselves. And maybe people find it refreshing to, to step out into a wild place. And I think one of the things that's difficult, I mean, it's difficult and beautiful to live in any age, but one of the things that's maybe difficult is we sometimes wake up in the morning and we don't know what we're up against. You know, what is it creating this anxiety in me? What is it creating this sadness? What is it creating this fear? I can't quite name it. I can't quite put a finger on it. I can't quite. And that creates distress and maybe even creates those situations we were talking about where we project that into others. But I think maybe what I was interested in doing in my book is showing one man's journey where there is what T.S. Eliot would call an objective correlative for his despair. He puts it all into something. He's on a quest. He's searching for something. He's out to get something. And I think in times of kind of nebulous, formless fear and despair, those kinds of books perhaps, re- perhaps resonate with people. They say, okay, well, I can see what I'm, what I'm trying to fight here. And there's a twist at the end where one ultimately realizes that when you do away with that thing that's standing in for all of your emotions, the emotions are going to be there at the end still, and you ultimately have to, have to face them. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to any cool music while writing or before writing that really helped inspire that? Or that's a great question. I'm trying to think back. Because for some sometime. reason, like I'm having like a Eddie Vedder uh, playlist for like Into the oh, Wild. Oh, for Into the Wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's that that's funny because that um, I was talking with a friend of mine about that book and that story and the figure of of, of Alexander Supertramp and such a fascinating figure because this is such a temptation to romanticize Mm -hmm. a figure like that when really there's a lot of pain there and there's a lot of inability to connect to other people but um yeah in terms of music i remember you know i would get lost in the book for long periods of time but i do often use music when i'm coming out of my writing process to maybe change my headspace so sometimes i'm listening to something that 
seems entirely in a different in a different um, in a different world. More often than not, I would just pick up my guitar and play something and let my hands do some work rather than my head, and um, that was always you know very different. Whatever I was playing at that at that moment. I would it be really stuff recall. that like you wrote, or just kind of like doing some Bob Dylan, Joan Baez? Yeah, it's D- Dylan always makes his way in there. I like to tool around and do different versions of his songs and arrange things because there's there's so much depth and richness in there. And then yeah, I think that's I mentioned it was only a couple years ago that I started getting back into writing my own songs, and because it's such a different headspace, you can you can get out of the headspace of the book that you're writing, and you know, do some weird things with chords and lyrics and sing your heart out and get, get something out of you and, and then hit the book freshly the, the next day. Have you ever considered writing almost like a soundtrack for one of your books? Yeah, I hadn't. That's, a, that's an interesting idea, though. I mean, I do a lot of work with reading my own work and reading other people's work and trying to bring literature, you know, in that ancient way back to the human voice. And... Um, yeah, it'd be pretty cool to think about the ways in which music could coexist with the... It's tricky because because I want there to be this radiant silence around the language on the page so that it carries its own music. But it, So it would be a different document to combine it with music. But it, yeah, it'd be very cool. It's something to think about. Thanks, Mallory. It's, now I'm <laughs> going to think about that. <laughs> I mean, because there are quite a few things like uh, America cassette stereo... I forget the whole name of it, but they do it where they put music with the audio of reading the book on a cassette tape. So that's one cool medium. And a lot of Maudlin House books, we have QR codes that go with the music. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that creates a whole different experience for the the reader, for the reader slash listener, I imagine. See, there's one way step backwards to listen to music with cassettes and one step forward to connect them (laughs) with Spotify. (laughs) Oh, God, you remember, yeah, cassettes, mixtapes. There was something so intimate about that, though. Did you ever make mixtapes for anyone? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, and and receive them. That was like a, you really knew that that, 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 that little relationship you were in meant something when someone took the time to make you a mixtape, <laughs> you know, and, and um, there was something so beautifully imperfect about it, little stops and starts here and there, yeah. I was huh. always terrible at it. I would be the person actually holding the stereo to my TV. <laughs> yeah, like, this is a good do one. It. Like, doing, it like, MTV t- unplugged things. Yeah. yeah, it was tough to figure out. I remember it being tough to figure out. And then, of course, like, you graduate to, like, the mixed CDs where you're burning them from, like, uh, LimeWire or stuff like that. Yeah, you remember, do you remember Napster? <clears throat> I never got into Napster. That happened really quickly. Hmm. But I like, got into LimeWire and FrostWire. Yeah, I think Napster was maybe maybe when I was in college. It kind of was like a flash, if you it recall. It was a flash. Yeah, it was a flash. But I remember it being a pretty brilliant flash because because I was so into Dylan, and, and that was you know before YouTube or whatever. So it's like I've suddenly found these old tracks from you know. I mean, now everything's out there, right? So you can. You can get, get it off of any streaming. Yeah, yeah, you can get anything. But back then, it was like, you know, running down the hall saying, "You guys got to hear this weird version of this Dylan song from '61," or mm-hmm. like a scavenger hunt. See, mm-hmm. it was my favorite kind of music where you could just kind of like 
give miscellaneous tapes or CDs and everything to other people. Yeah, I make those discoveries. Yeah. It's almost like you're sharing a part of yourself with someone else. Yeah, I'd like to do that still, you know. <clears throat> Ask somebody or say to somebody, hey, you know, I'm going on a... <clears throat> I'm going on... <clears throat> Hang on, let me take a drink of water here. That's cool. Yeah, you say to somebody... <clears throat> you say to somebody, I'm going on a long, long drive and, you know, send me a couple songs that you're listening to. And you feel like you're in their head, you're in their soul for a second. It's great. Mm -hmm. Music can do that. It's this very generous art form. And when it comes to lyrical content in music, there are things that, and Dylan talks about this, there are things that work in a song that might not work in a poem because you've got the uh, rhythmic structure underneath it. It can inform the tone of what you're saying. So you can sing a really super cliche line, but you can carry it in a song because it maybe has a certain tone that's informed by the music or the rhythm or the intonation of your voice. And that, that's what makes it a very different art form. Of course, we always say, you know, you go back deep enough in time and, and lyric poetry has the lyre and, and, and it is music. But, but at this point, they are, they are different art forms. I, on my first road trip, actually listened to a mixtape because the car we had only allowed cassettes. And I remember it really shocked me because I had my one friend who actually plays folk music a lot. So he was mixing it a lot with like Bob Dylan and a lot of music like that. But then like at the very end, he had Allen Ginsberg reciting oh, wow. America. Oh, and wow. I was like, oh, this really fits the road trip vibe. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And of course, um, Dylan and Ginsberg certainly got along and inspired each other in different ways. I never got super into the beats and, and it, maybe I, I expected that I would because I was right there thinking about that music from, from right after that. But, um, I was going to say, didn't a few beats come from Columbia? Yeah. Well, Ginsburg spent time at Columbia. I think he got in trouble and got kicked out or something. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. He but, seems to uh, type. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, but for me, when I first first started really thinking about or not thinking about but letting poems that felt more like my own come through me it was more poets poets from the 1960s the the deep image poets I was very drawn to James Wright's poetry and Galway Cannell's poetry like a lot of people um, are I imagine but that was something that that kind of first really hit me in the gut in a certain kind of way and then of course you get into different influences and different books of mine um, come out of different reading experiences who is your favorite poet in general I couldn't even say I mean when I was younger I mean there's so many and I just think that I'm always looking for different things that satisfy different different parts of me I mean there was a time for example when do you know the poet Frank Stanford? Mm -hmm. He's wild. I mean, just this kind of genius explosion from the American South. And I discovered him in grad school, read his work. And this was before Copper Canyon, I believe, had come out with the selected or collected poems of his. And so I, I remember traveling up to um, 
the Yale Library where C.D. Wright had donated his papers, and you know you kind of make a reservation in advance, and then you sit there, and they bring this box out, and it's all of his papers that would later be collected in books. But you know you open a little yellow legal pad that has a poem of his scribbled on it, and it's better than a lot of things you've read that year. So he was somebody who really uh, moved me in a certain way. But then I don't read him much now. Um, so it's not that I dislike the work, but you, you change. You change, and you're grateful for the poets who have woken different things in you. There are a lot of poets who, who do sort of one thing really, really well, and they have a narrow range. I think that's most poets. Mm-hmm. And then there are artists who have that whole arc of work that you can kind of always be there and grow with. Um, and, and those are, those are different ones. Uh, so maybe, maybe Stanford is, is more of a, for a particular time or moment in your life. Kind of like a gateway drug. Yeah, he's sort of a gateway drug. Do you ever find yourself accidentally emulating any other writers? I think at this point in my career... You finally I, come into your own. Yeah, but, well, you know, you never know. But I think that if I do it, I can hear it. I think, I think one of the great virtues you have as a young, really young writer, I still think of myself as a young writer, but let's say as a really young writer, you kind of have the virtue of having blinders on and being a little bit deaf. You know, you sort of don't know what you're up to entirely. You don't know which lines you've... you've, you've know stolen from a certain ghost somewhere and and you just go and you create and you make and you you're you're kind of wild and and that's great and that that sustains you and and it really is your own voice if you're feeling it from within you but I do think the journey in a life and the journey in an artistic life is as I say rising to higher levels of consciousness which does not compromise the depths of the unconscious it's always infinite but so now if I'm writing something and I feel, hey, this kind of sounds like this or that, I'll just hear that that's the case and um, take it out or want to go in a different direction or sit with something longer until it really feels like me or, or something that I really have to make. Do you like have a very different form of, say, like language, linguistics or anything that differ from the writers that you like? I think every book is different. For example, the... Um, uh, I know you read my my novel, Dark Heart of Every Wild Thing, and then the novel that I'm working on now is such different language. And I think that you kind of work and wait until a new language and a new form presents itself where you find that to express its work. Now, that said, I imagine anyone who looks at my work would probably say, okay, well, this poem that you wrote in your first book sounds a lot like this other one that you wrote yesterday and that's not to be avoided it's a certain sense of self in that but yeah I like thinking of books as it's like it's like a different album right it's mm -hmm. it's a different a whole different place that it's coming from and a whole different place it's trying to get to are there any bands currently you listen to to just kind of like clear your mind I am so you know not at all disparaging about contemporary music. I'm just uninformed. I'm just um, I'm just somebody who your students um, aren't keeping you up. <laughs> my students, I think they gave up on that. <laughs> there was a point at which they said, you know, you don't get our references. 
Um, <laughs> no, I'm just, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty old school when it comes to my musical taste, and I, I kind of feel that there's enough infinity in that um, to keep going down into the roots of, of that music that um, I'm always, I always feel like I'm discovering something new. I'm always open to things that my friends show me, and I say, okay, that's, you know, that's great. I, I like that sound. But I don't know. It's, it's hard to find things that aren't really overproduced, um, packaged oh, yeah, in a certain these way. Days. Yeah, that I, a way that I can't necessarily connect to. I'm totally confident that there's amazing music being made that, of course, I just don't know about, but it's probably being distributed on smaller platforms. Well, that's you what's know. so cool about Spotify and everything is that even the most obscure musician can get on there and you can listen to them. Yeah, well, you'll have to send me some some recommendations and then I'll I'll, I'll put them on my summer playlist. Ooh, do you have it like made right now? No, I'm putting it together. I'm starting to think as I just finished my semester of of teaching, I'm I'm going to start doing a little bit of traveling now that we can do that relatively safely. And no, so I'm excited to. Uh, to take some, take some new music in me with me. Do you do like cool names for your playlist, or are you just gonna do summer twenty one? Oh yeah, yeah. The other day, um, I uh, it was after Easter, and I just I don't know why, but I titled. I was driving, and I titled the playlist the "After the Tomb Was Opened" playlist. <laughs> it's just you know, yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm normally doing um, yeah weird ways to orient myself and the experience that's that's about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find myself doing things like number one songs in heaven, hype music playlist, sad boy nice. FM. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Or kids bops, but they're not actually kids bops. It's just appropriate songs I can listen to around my family. Oh, my God. That's great. Yeah, it just works out that way. <laughs> That's great. So what genre do you find yourself going back to time and time again? In terms of literature or in terms of music? Music. I, I do. It's funny because to use the word folk music means so many different things to so many different people. So I kind of half make up this term and then use it. And I just say, you know, rootsy music. And by that, I mean, um, you know, I like music that has a really stripped down sound so that it's just kind of a guitar and a voice or one instrument and a, and, and a voice. So I guess in a way you can call that folk. You mentioned Joan Baez before, and mm-hmm. it's funny because I was just playing her on, on vinyl last night. Her voice is, I mean, it still is, as a matter of fact. She, she, has a, she had a record out recently in which she did a song of, um, well, Josh Ritter, for example. I mean, talking about contemporary songwriters. Josh Ritter, I think, is a really good songwriter. And um, Justin Towns Earl, who unfortunately just passed away, during the pandemic, um, was a really, really great songwriter, um, named after Towns Van Zandt, who's one of my favorite songwriters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, you know, music, that's sort of, that gives you a sense of, of the kind of thing that, that I'm into. I think Justin Towns Earl had this great way of bringing that kind of rootsy, bluesy, folky music to, um, you know, he was living in Brooklyn for a while, and he had this sort of sound that, that connected to um, connected to the New York landscape in this interesting way. Um, there's a band called the Felice Brothers. Have you heard of them? No. So um, it's funny. I mean, I was just saying I'm not listening to contemporary music, and then I'm naming all this stuff that I'm into. But the Felice Brothers are from roughly from 
um, where I'm from, uh, up in the Hudson Valley. And uh, they have this really amazing sound, really, really amazing sound. Uh, it came to mind when I was thinking of Justin Towns Earl because there is a deeply rootsy, folky, bluesy feel, but they have this record what is the record called? Now I'm forgetting the name of the record. But that also puts it together with some synthesizer stuff. And I always describe it as a Hudson Valley sound because it's, it's, it's one foot in the country and it's one foot in the city. And I think that they really gave voice to that. So that's something that I've... Um, I don't know what they're doing right now or if they're still making music, but... Um, I think everybody's I, been taking a break for the last year yeah. or so. Hopefully writing. Hopefully. Definitely hopefully. I'm trying to figure out how you actually, like, actually describe how folk music sounds. Like, you know it when you hear it, but I don't know how to <laughs> describe it to somebody. No, that's a, that's a great way to describe it. That you, yeah, you just know it when you hear it. It's because um, we also know what, what, no, I hate to say this, this sounds so judgmental, but kind of like fake folk music sounds like, which is to say it packages itself as such just because it's a sweet voice and a couple chords and a 12-string guitar, mm -hmm. but um, but it doesn't have any soul in it. And when I think of folk music, I mean, think about the idea of folk. It, it describes people, a multiplicity of people. So it's something that has roots in, you know, storytelling, reaching across uh, different people, try to tell a story. Um, but also has, has a lot of soul in it to connect it to the earth. Yeah, I've read before that, like, it could be described as, like, world music or music about cultural or national identity, but I'm not sure if yeah. I see that in Dylan. Yeah, no, because I think it's, the term folk music is used in these definitely two ways. So you could say this is a culture's folk music. So you could refer to, like, Polish folk music in which you are referring to the stories of a culture, um, something that has a root in their local instrumentation. And in that sense, it's a, it's a particular definition that applies to, to different cultures, so it, it means different things. But yeah, I think when I think about folk music, and when you think about it in the American tradition, one of the things you're talking about is a certain roughness and messiness, which I love. You know, the... Um, uh, you know, Dylan's voice, um, the kind of truth that it has in it is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and I mentioned Towns Van Zandt's voice. Um, I mean, there's someone like Emmy Lou Harris who has one of the most beautiful voices in the world, but, but, but even she has a certain kind of, um, there's a certain kind of geometric roughness to it. It's, it's not just pretty, it's true, you know? And um, I think that's something that... Um, you know, John Jacob Niles or people like that, these extraordinary voices that come from some other world, and yet, and yet this one. To me, that's folk music. I dig that. I dig that. So do you have something you want to read for us? You know, I can read a, um, a passage from, from my novel, The Dark Heart of Every Wild Thing, and I'll just read a short paragraph from it. And I suppose the only setup that's necessary is, as I mentioned, it's a novel about a man in the wilderness of British Columbia on a quest to hunt down an animal that has done something to someone he, he loves. So he's thinking about vengeance. I'd wanted no vengeance but 
against the lie that drives us to deny the dominion in us. And I'd wanted it with grace, with compliance. And in the brief nights under the stars, curled beside the small fire of my son's body, I'd known only that I was powerless, and I'd praised it. I'd carried my own hands like totems in the dark, and I'd known that they could bless things and be blessed. And when I'd lifted my son or soothed his mother, it was in bliss or in pain or in joy, but I was there for it. In the nights, too, alone or holding her hard against her sobbing, I knew that forgiveness, too, was a fire, and you carried it in the small tinder of your own two hands. And if you did not fail it, you could illuminate the world. Yeah, it's just a little passage there from that novel. You have really good reading voice. Oh, thank you. Like, it, it gets a little deeper and more intense. I think I connect to it in a way that it doesn't even feel like me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, there definitely it's like a it shift does. in it feels personality like where it's like, ooh, different tone. Yeah. It feels like something else is happening. And um, I kind of think that's the way it should be. There's, you know, it's, Yeats has this idea that the other world is this one. Um, or that, that somehow the other world is this one intensified. And it's not that my literature has to be one tone. Um, but I do feel that, um, that it's the most centered part of whatever the thing is that I am. I like it. I like it. <laughs> is there anything you want to plug before we go? Um, well, yeah, people can find the novel, The Dark Heart of Every Wild Thing. Um, it's out, out there uh, to be found in all the usual places. My most recent book of poems is called The Crossing. And um, other than that, um, yeah, I, I would, uh, if people are interested, they could check out my we were talking about social media and my own social media on, on, on Twitter and, and Instagram is space where I share, um, I share music as well as, as well as poems usually. And then the uh, program that I've been doing for about a year now, I do something called the poem for you series, which grew pretty organically out of a, um, out of the pandemic when I was sharing poems uh, reading poems, other people's poems, sometimes my own. And I realized that there was a kind of thirst for that. So I've been bringing together uh, different different artists uh, to read poems by request. So if you check out the Poem For You series online, as I say, on Instagram or on Twitter, um, you can make a request. And we have poets. We had um, recent Pulitzer Prize winner Jericho Brown read a poem for us. Um, we had former Poet Laureate uh, Robert Pinsky read a poem for us. A whole bunch of people, a diverse chorus of voices, so yeah, you can go on there, and if you want to hear uh, somebody read one of your favorite poems, just toss us a request, and and we'll have somebody um, somebody somebody read it for you to you. That's lit. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being on the show. It's really been a pleasure, Mallory. Really a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, that was Joseph Asano, and I think I speak for everybody when I say that was an amazing conversation and it was just so great having him on the show if you're interested in checking out some of his books or writing hit up his website josephasano.net or get to know him a little bit more personally on twitter at joseph underscore fasano underscore 
As always, if you want to get to know us more, find Textual Healing on Twitter, at Pod Healing, and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. If you want to be extra supportive, take a look at our Patreon. Shout out, by the way, to all the awesome people who have become patrons of the show. We love you. You keep us going. We are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, leave reviews, leave a rating, check out past episodes, and keep a lookout for the new ones to come. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show.